From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth, where we talk about workplace and personal finance in a way that makes sense to everybody, not just for the business geeks, not just for the ones that live in the big towers downtown, but for all of us, pocketbook issues, issues that really matter to our family finances. And hopefully when you listen to this show, you can walk away with some tips that you can put to use right away. You can put into practice right away. This week, the big news was inflation data that came out from Statistics Canada. Every month, uh, StatsCan releases its inflation data. And what it shows is how much that same basket of goods cost compared to last year. They also do month over month, but with the headline, the big headlines usually are grabbed by how much things are costing more year over year. And it does show that inflation is coming down. We're at 5.9%, down from 8.1% in the summer. So these higher interest rates that the Bank of Canada has been uh, has been continuing to hike uh, and making our money more expensive, uh, they're working. People are spending uh, in different ways. They're spending less and prices are starting to come down. Demand is starting to fall off a little bit. We will be speaking to an economist from RBC uh, Economics about what the inflation data means, why it's lower, and why some items like grocery items remain persistently high. Because that's the stuff that matters to us, right? Like we don't care if things like cannabis and liquor and travels becomes cheaper because maybe that doesn't matter to us, but we do have to go to the grocery store. We do have to buy food for our family. And if that remains high, then really it doesn't matter to us that inflation is coming down because personal inflation, stuff that you buy, you and I buy like groceries and gas and household items, they remain high and more expensive than they were last year and they seem to be coming down slower and slower. So we will be talking to an economist after uh, this next break about those inflation numbers. But before we go to that, I wanted to talk about a new poll by Scotiabank that reveals that on average, Canadians, all of us, are worrying about our finances, get this, 15 hours a week. And that's up from 10 hours from the last time they did this survey. So we are three times more stressed out and spending more time worrying about our finances. What did this worry poll, as Scotiabank calls it, uh, reveal? That we are, 44% of us are concerned about our day-to-day expenses. So how are we going to pay for things on a daily basis? Paying off our debt. Interest rates are going up. Debt is getting more expensive. So how are we going to get that debt paid down? That is something that is giving us sleepless nights and making us think more and more about our personal finance situation. And and this is, I think, really telling of what's happened in the last three years. 38% of us are concerned about saving for emergencies. When the pandemic hit back in March 2020, the people who had saved money in an emergency fund, yes, they were stressed because the pandemic was a stressful time, but had the comfort in knowing that they had cash on the side in case something went wrong. They lost their job. They couldn't pay their bills. They weren't able, uh, maybe their spouse was out of work, whatever it was. If an income or part of an income disappeared, there was some money on the side to pay for it. And so that's why the fact that more of us are now concerned about saving for an emergency, I think is actually a bright spot. It shows that we are now worrying about the right things. 
We're not just worrying about our ability to buy a bigger home or a better car. We're worrying about how to save for our future, how to secure our future. And I think that is one positive out of this worry poll, as Scotiabank calls it, even though it does show that so many of us are more concerned about our money, three times more concerned. And you know what that means? It means sleepless nights. It means lost productivity at work. It means arguments in your relationship. That's what it translates to. So it's really important if you are concerned about your personal finances, about your financial situation, that you speak to a financial counselor, you speak to your doctor if you feel that it's actually affecting your mental health and that you actually take steps towards financial wellness. And one of those steps could be listening to this program for what it's worth. I don't say that lightly. I try to always keep financial wellness top of mind when we're doing this show. How are the topics that we're covering going to actually help you to be more financially well? Because that's all we want. We want the listeners to walk away with the feeling that they have more control over their money and they can do something positive with it today. That will make them more uh, financially comfortable and feel better about their personal finance situation. We are going to come back and then we're going to discuss these inflation numbers that came out this week. And uh, when can we actually expect inflation to get back to normal? You know what normal is? 2%. We're way, way away from that. So when can we actually expect inflation to get to that level? I'm Rubina Ahmed Haq, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. We got some latest numbers from Statistics Canada when it comes to inflation, giving us a peek into how much more we're paying for the same basket of goods year over year. And it seems like the higher interest rates that the Bank of Canada has been bringing in for the last about a year are working. Inflation is down to 5.9%, and we haven't been there since February. 2022, since last year, basically at this time. But some of the main things that really have made it more expensive for Canadians, like groceries and household items, they still remain persistently high. So what's going on with inflation? And when are we going to see those prices come down at least year over year on the things that we buy every day, like eggs and milk and bread and things we can't avoid because so what if liquor is cheaper? We really want to know when the everyday household items that we buy are going to get cheaper and actually have an impact on our pocketbook. To explain the inflation numbers that came out this week for the month of January, we're joined by Claire Fan. She's an economist with RBC Economics. Hi, welcome to the program, Claire. Hi, Rubina. Thanks for having me. I wanted to first start by asking you, what was your expectations or your bank's expectations uh, for January's inflation data? And did it come in line with what you were forecasting? Uh, Yeah, of course. So I think ahead of the January CPI numbers that were released, we're all expecting further moderations in price pressure in Canada. Um, And we were expecting, you know, uh, easing in price pressure across different goods and services as well. So headline CPI obviously came lower. It was actually a positive surprise. It came lower than we had even expected. Um, So at 5.9%, and uh, core inflation as well, some more easing that we saw. So largely, you know, the report came as pretty much uh, bang on uh, in terms of expectation. Now, it is much lower, especially since it peaked at over 8% in the summer. What's driving this number down? Why is it so much lower than it was even six months ago? 
Um, so there are a couple of things. So if you look at the numbers in terms of the key components that are driving uh, the headline numbers lower, so number one would be um, energy inflation, which dropped uh, from well over double digit to, um, uh, if I remember correctly, is around 5.7%. Uh, actually 5.4% in January year over year. So, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, lower global uh, energy commodity prices. Um, so a lot of the consumer prices, obviously uh, gasoline prices, for an example, that's most relevant to a Canadian households. Uh, those prices have just been chasing oil prices down. Um, so, you know, that's a key contributor to the lower headline inflation that we're seeing right now, um, you know, and sort of like a, a offsetting balance over there is, is obviously, like you mentioned, food inflation at 10.4% and grocery prices inflation at over 11% in January, obviously, were still extremely high. But for um, other goods and services, you know, excluding food and energy, which is what we call core CPI. So that's sort of like a measure that's, um, you know, uh, calculated to get a better gauge at underlying inflation, the more sort of resilient um, uh, part of inflation pressure that's not directly tied to the more volatile commodity prices. Um, and that's been coming down quite nicely as well to under 5% in January, which uh, was the first time in almost a year as well. Uh, if you look at sort of the components speaking, that's really what's been coming down nicely. Um, some other examples, for example, um, a, a lot of the travel related things, including travel accommodation, traveler services, as well as, again, gasoline prices and airfares. So those things have been moderating quite a while. So that's just a reflection of, you know, the post-pandemic uh, surge in travel demand has been cal calming down um, a little bit as well. So it all sort of ties together with uh, what we've been seeing in terms of, you know, different patterns uh, from consumer demand. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of uh, what we're seeing in terms of um, the, the inflation pressure and numbers, uh, what's been driving it lower. Uh, Yep. And, and like I mentioned off the top, uh, grocery store prices, and you mentioned that too, are still persistently high. Uh, a lot of people look at these inflation numbers and say, so what? It's still costing me so much more to feed my family. Is there any reason why food inflation specifically, especially on items like baked goods and dairy, why that remains so much higher uh, than headline inflation? Um, yeah, so, uh, well, the food inflation is really unique because um, it's sort of a product of um, all these different drivers that's been pushing inflation higher since the beginning of 2021. Um, so all these drivers are kind of present when you look at food inflation. So that includes obviously, number one, higher agriculture commodity prices, which was due to two factors. Number one, um, Russian invasion into Ukraine that's been driving wheat prices up uh, quite substantially. And outside of that, number two is just adverse weather events here in Canada. Canada back in 2021, severe droughts and condition impacting crop production uh, that year, as well as, you know, um, what, uh, what was used to feed livestock as well. So that impacts meat production. So a lot of those input prices at the time um, were kind of impacted just because the supply was uh, not inadequate in, in terms of that year. But 2022 was a good year in terms of, um, you know, uh, crop production again. So 
domestically. So we're seeing some uh, some good signs over there, and um, uh, you can see that in agricultural commodity prices as well, which have been trending st- steadily lower towards where they were before the pandemic. Um, but outside of that, obviously, there are other factors as well. You know, the supply chain uh uh, and higher uh, packaging material costs are all sort of things that impact food manufacturing at the same time, you know, um, higher labor costs, um, more sort of accelerations that we've seen in wage increases as well. So all these different factors combine to drive food inflation to data and it's taking a while and it will take a while, usually, you know, around nine months to a year for us to see some easing uh, in, in retail food prices as um, passed out from initial uh, moderations in, in input and raw commodity prices. So um, mm-hmm. that is just to say that, you know, moving forward, where do we expect food inflation to go? We do expect to see a lot more easing in, in terms of food inflation, just because a lot of the drivers uh, that I just sort of mentioned, we're seeing good signs uh, across uh, basically uh, all of them. Um, so yeah, so so moving forward, definitely expect food inflation to come down a bit, and um, you know, food inflation itself has been staggering at around just a bit ten percent for quite a few months now, um, and uh, after increasing pretty rapidly, so it's flattening out a bit more, and hopefully it will uh, be on sort of like a downward trajectory uh, in in the months ahead. Now, taking these new numbers into uh, consideration, uh, what's your forecast now for headline inflation? Because a Bank of Canada wants to get inflation to 2%. That's where they feel the economy is the healthiest when we have 2% inflation year over year. Uh, when When's the expectation of when we're going to get to that point? So our own forecast for headline inflation is that it slows to just a bit over 2%. Um, Around the end of this year or the beginning of next year. So a lot of it, again, has to do with base, base effect. So and, and that has to do with energy prices. So that in of itself um, contributes or will contribute a lot to the decline in, in headline inflation. Um, but, you know, core inflation, which is, again, inflation outside of food and energy components, that is uh, sort of um, aim to provide a better gauge at underlying uh, inflation pressure is probably going to be a bit stickier. So core inflation is expected to slow to 2.5% by the end of next year, and by the end of this year is around 3%. So it will be stickier on the way down, um, just because we do kind of expect a, a mild or milder pullback in consumer spending sort of in line with what we're, what we're expecting for inflation trends. And I believe those forecasts should be more or less in line with what the Bank of Canada was projecting their latest round of forecast, uh, forecast material as well. And now everyone's sites are on the Bank of Canada because interest rates being higher, that's of course uh, led to Canadians having to pay more for their debt overall, uh, increasing that inflation number as well. What's your expectation? Um, There was some talk, economists were forecasting another 25 basis point hike uh, or a quarter of a percentage point hike. Is that still something you're forecasting uh, for the Bank of Canada over the next uh, few quarters? Uh, so our base case forecast remains that we think the bank will be on hold um, in terms of uh, where they are at currently with the overnight rate um, being held at uh, 4.5% through at least the end of this year. Um, so that remains our base case forecast. 
Um, obviously, you know, inflation again with yesterday's report, it's it's uh, showing a lot of green shoots. Um, not only are the numbers coming down, um, we're also seeing sort of uh, like improvement in terms of the breadth of inflation pressures. And that in a nutshell means higher prices are impacting less goods and services that are consumed by household. And that to us is an incredibly important point to be making as well. Um, so moving forward, you know, continuing to expect more moderations or easing and inflation pressure. And to us, that alone should be enough to keep the bank on pause uh, at currently uh, high, well, extremely elevated level of an overnight rate already throughout this year. But, um, you know, there are other data that we're watching as well. For example, January's labor market report obviously came out extremely strong with over 150,000 jobs added. Um, wage gain is decelerating but at over five percent year over year is obviously still quite high and consumer mm-hmm. spending um, has been coming down a little bit but it's we're, we're yet we have yet to see any sort of persistent signs of slowing there so all of those kind of reaffirm that uh you know the further easing in in, in inflation pressures will come slower uh, than mm-hmm. the moderations we've seen to date Claire, thank you so much for joining us today on the program for what it's worth and and breaking down this inflation data, which I know for a lot of people um, is something they're watching more carefully as they're seeing their own cost of living uh, remain persistently high. Yeah, for sure. Definitely, definitely uh, true for my own uh, sake as well in terms of hoping food inflation will, will uh, will start moderating very soon. Thank you so much. That's Claire Fan. She's an economist with RBC uh, Economics talking about the latest uh, inflation or CPI numbers uh, for January. That's uh, what we are paying for the same basket of goods compared to January 2022. And they're saying we're paying now 5.9% more than we were a year ago. But that number is down from the summer when we were paying for that same basket of goods 8.1%. So definitely things are becoming a little bit more normalized. A couple of terms that we use there, headline inflation is the measure of total inflation within an economy, and that includes commodities like gasoline uh, and food and energy prices. So it's everything in combination. And then when you look deeper and you say food inflation, that is specifically talking, of course, about the cost of food year over year. And Claire mentioned a couple of times sticky, that inflation remains sticky. What that means is that interest rates are potentially going to stay high higher for longer. So they are going to stick to us for that much more longer, which is not good news for consumers because that means we're paying more for those goods year over year for a longer time than we had wanted to. Uh, But it puts into perspective the kind of year that we can expect. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of remote work. Every company in the world seemed to be happy with workers being from home four days a week, maybe even five days a week, coming in once a month. That's not the case anymore. Companies are changing their mind when it comes to how much remote work they actually want their employees to do. I'm Rubina Ahmad Haq, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. One of the big buzzwords of the pandemic has been hybrid work, remote work, because we, well, many of us, 
millions of us were forced home during the beginning of the pandemic so that we could stop the spread of COVID-19. And all of a sudden, we were forced to learn new tech tools, how to collaborate with people when they were in different parts of the city, different parts of the province, maybe even different parts of the country. And so we've become really good at working remote. But now three years after the pandemic started, a lot of companies are really trying to figure out what hybrid and remote work means to them going forward. And workers are also trying to carry some of the things that they like about remote work into the future because so many of us have said, we like the flexibility. We like the idea that we get to be home a couple of days so that we can do other things with our time rather than commuting or spending time at lunch when we could just be doing that all at home and doing our work at the same time too. Well, to talk about some remote work trends and where we're headed in 2023, I'm joined by Kula Vasilopoulos. She's the Senior Managing Director at Robert Half Canada. Robert Half Canada is a recruitment company and she joins me now. Hi, Kula. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, I know Robert Half did some uh, some research into what remote work means for 2023. Uh, what did that reveal? What role is remote work playing in our economy right now? Well, you know, it's interesting because we've been talking about this topic really since the middle of 2020. Um, but we, what are, we are seeing really is just some shifting and some evolution. Uh, you know, ultimately, r- remote work is still here to stay. Hybrid, um, remote, in, individuals, employees are still looking for and craving for that flexibility. Um, they learned through the pandemic that they could be productive um, and that they were able to also have, you know, maybe a better quality of flexibility in their life. And so, you know, really that remote jobs are here to stay uh, or hybrid jobs, if you want to call them that. Um, What we are seeing is that more and more workers are interested in hybrid or fully remote roles. So our current data is showing 85% of workers are interested in hybrid or fully remote positions. What was interesting is about, I, I went back about a year and a bit, and it was 65%. So what we're seeing is more and more employees and you know workers are really craving that what whatever that looks like hybrid fully remote um that's really really important to them i just think workers employees and myself included we want more control of our time uh which didn't seem to exist not at the same way not in the same way that it does now uh before the pandemic started it really forced employers to take a look at uh, work from home and remote work as a as a valuable option for their employees that actually make their lives uh, better. But not everybody wants to be fully remote. Can you talk to us a little bit about some workers who want to be back in the office and don't want to be in this uh, fully remote a uh, fully remote situation? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, just from what the data is showing us and what we know anecdotally, we are seeing that people are feeling that being in office still does have benefits. So, you know, nearly two thirds or 65% said that they have more effective relationships with colleagues whom they've really met face-to-face versus, you know, fully virtual. And I mean, I can comment even personally, I spent a great deal of time 
in a virtual world that we were thrust into in the middle of March, um, which was completely different to what I was used to. Um, and, you know, we, we did that because we had to, we didn't really have a choice. And I think that um, is, you know, so important in what you talk about, because it, people lost their ability to have choice through COVID. And then as we started to come out, I think they felt, you know, there was some great benefit to a, the ability really to have choice because they were still productive, um, they were still connected. But I do think that as we've, you know, come out and it's been, you know, I think from a health and safety aspect, um, safer to be together, um, people are still seeing that there is benefit. So, uh, and I know I am also one of those. I've craved, um, you know, in-person connection, whether it's with a client, whether it's with a customer, whether it's with a colleague, um, you know, it doesn't maybe need to be eight hours a day, five days a week, um, like it was. However, um, I think many, many people are still craving that in-person connection. We're speaking to Kula Vasilopoulos. She's the Senior Managing Director at Robert Half Canada about uh, remote work and the future of remote work in uh, in Canada and worldwide as well, uh, because it's not just Canada that experienced uh, a lot of workers having to work from home uh, for the last couple of years. Kula, work, remote work specifically, is not being offered equally uh, in companies, in industries. Some I'm hearing are asking their workers to come back four days a week and have one day remote. Some are saying you can work from home all the time. Remote work is the way we're going forward. Um, what are workers saying to that as as they come back to the office? Uh, are we hearing, the, I, I know you said that many workers want to have a remote option, but are 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 companies losing talent, who, the ones who are saying, we want you back four days a week in the office? Um, well, I would say absolutely. Um, if they aren't, they potentially could in the future. I, you know, I think flexibility over where and when people work is just really a major priority for individuals. And there is a lot of opportunity out there. People, employees have choice. And so, you know, if, if companies are, um, you know, strict and or rigid uh, for whatever reason uh, to their timeline of in office, it may reduce the amount of individuals that they can really play for in terms of, you know, talent pool. You know, that being said, there also are individuals who are not at all interested in fully remote. Um, they want some sort of flexibility. So I, I think, you know, organizations that have been able to, you know, offer a bit of a balance um, and offer employees this level of autonomy are really able to not only retain top talent, but attract talent and more importantly, um, improve employee satisfaction. Now, one of the benefits of remote work is that you can work from anywhere. And so if there's a job in Vancouver and you live in Halifax, you could potentially apply for that and get that job and actually do it. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, the impact that remote work has had on access to employment, especially for those uh, who are, uh, they have young kids and they may not have felt that they could ever do a job in another part of the country and now have access to that. How has it improved access to employment? 
Well, I certainly think it's provided greater um, volume of opportunity. Uh, you know, we have individuals that I'm aware of, um, you know, a variety of different companies that have moved during the pandemic um, and are, you know, still employed with their employer. And really, I think, you know, sometimes you look at our country and it's beautiful. It's got many time zones. So if you're working in one geography supporting another, you know, time zone and time change can come into play. But in, in this instance and in a couple of instances, it's actually worked to a benefit because it's allowed the individual the ability to, you know, maybe be there for their young family when they need to and then work the hours that are in line with the market that they're supporting, which could be a bit different than where they're residing. So I certainly think it's provided more opportunity. Uh, and for companies who are really, you know, focused on 100% remote roles, uh, I think it's opened up a market to them um, that maybe has a wider pool of people today than it did prior to the pandemic. And Kula, we are an example of that. Uh, we are all working remotely right now. Uh, there is a major snowstorm that's moving through Southern Ontario and I'm working from home. There's no way I would have been able to make it into downtown Toronto today, but I'm able to do this job from home. Uh, our technical producers, James and Bilal are in the studio in Toronto recording this and you're in Winnipeg where you're telling me yeah. it's minus 32 <laughs> degrees. So, you know, it is. It, it not only gives you access to more employment, it gives you access to more resources because we can come together in a way that we probably couldn't have three years ago. You know, three years ago, I might have asked you to go to some studio to record this. I would have had to get into the city somehow. It would have been a completely different dynamic and maybe even a lot more stressful for us too. And speaking out of that, do you think remote work is here to stay? Because there are some naysayers that say, you know, we cannot work remotely like this for the long term. It's not, it's not feasible for the kind of world that we've set up for ourselves. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'd love to say that I had all the answers on the future, but from in my opinion, I do think remote and hybrid jobs um, and opportunities are here to stay. The level and the volume of those may flow and ebb and flow, but I do think that, you know, as an example, what you're talking about, what we're doing right now, I don't know how an organization would say, you know, that's not working for us. Um, and so uh, I think as, you know, technology evolves, as the needs and the desires and the demand from employees continues to evolve, I think companies are going to need to evolve. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we're 100% there yet today, um, but, you know, I, I think it's we're, we're getting there. It's, it's sort of all starting to maybe settle out. Um, you know, again, I will say that, you know, companies uh, and employees do say that they're, you know, being in office still has benefits. Um, and, and I think that those that are, you know, spending time connecting in person um, are actually creating and cultivating, you know, more effective and maybe stronger relationships. That said, what we're doing today and what we're talking about today, um, I don't know that it should ever go away. It, it, mm -hmm. it gives us um, companies, businesses, society, the flexibility um, to be able to come together in a conversation um, like we are doing today. Kula, thank you so much for joining me remotely and having this uh, conversation about uh, what your survey revealed about the future of remote work. I think a lot of people are 
a little nervous about being called in to work five days a week. And I think this will be, um, they will feel good hearing that most companies are moving towards a permanent hybrid model. So Kula, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, no problem. Thank you so much. That's Kula Vasilopoulos. She's a senior managing director at Robert Half Canada. Robert Half is a recruitment agency. And so this survey that they did really looked at the future of remote work. And, and Kula mentioned a couple times there the benefits of being in person. So I'm going to give you my own point of view, someone who's covered personal finance and workplace for more than a decade, that I think eventually companies are going to prefer the in-person model because we are set up that way before the pandemic. Two and a half years is not going to change decades, if not centuries, of the way that we have worked. But it has taken the stigma away from work from home. So if you tell your boss tomorrow, if you know if it's going to be a really bad weather day, I'm going to stay home because it's going to take me twice as long to get into the office, there isn't that feeling, that feeling that you're actually just trying to have a day off. They, they now believe that good work can be done from home. So if anything, the pandemic has proven that remote work is effective, Many of us want it. Many of us can do it. And in fact, many of us are more productive at home. The work from home days, a lot of people say, are the days they actually plan their week and get most of the stuff done, most of that grunt work done that continues to get uh, disrupted when you're in the office and someone's hanging around your desk, someone's asking you to go for coffee, because all of that, which is the joy of being in person, can actually be quite a big distraction. But in person is still... Uh, the way that we communicate, we are human beings. We like to see each other. We like to go out for dinner after. We like to have friendships at work. And I think that that is still a big and really important part of being an employee and being a part of the workforce. And I think that that is going to supersede um, our our desire to be remote and especially be remote all the time. I think companies will recognize how important it is for their workers to actually know each other on a more intimate level than over a Zoom call or over some sort of video conferencing uh, situation. When we come back, we are going to talk a little bit more about the inflation numbers that came out earlier this week. And I'm going to tell you about some grocery items that have actually gone down in price. I'm Rubina Madhuk, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed-Hawk. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, over the last hour. If you didn't get a chance to hear the first two interviews, uh, we spoke to Claire Fan from RBC Economics talking about the inflation data that came out this week and how inflation still remains persistently high at 5.9%, but it has come down since the summer from 8.1%. And some of the things that are driving it lower, travel costs have have, have normalized. Uh, we are paying less for some items every day in our life. But grocery costs still remain persistently high. Food costs are still 10.4% year over year. But here's the thing, not all grocery is that expensive year over year. Since last year, some costs have actually come down. So if we take a look at where grocery prices are at now, lettuce has actually come down 5.8% since December. So this is December over January prices, not year over year prices. Uh, canned and other preserved fish is down 3.3%. Breakfast cereal and other breakfast products are down 
rice and rice-based mixes. What's a rice-based mix? Is that like um, pablum or something? That's down. And also oranges. So we talk a lot about how fresh fruits and vegetables have been impacted by inflation and that we're paying more and more for those things that are healthiest for us. One thing that has come down at least month over month are oranges. So that is some bright spots in the inflation data. There are other products, dairy and bakery goods that continue to remain persistently high that we put in our basket every week when we go shopping and we're getting that sticker shock over and over again. Claire was saying how we can expect uh, inflation to be at about 3% at the end of this year and then back to normal 2% 2% at the end of 2024. So we still have a lot a lot of ways to go. It's called sticky inflation where it sticks around for a longer time. It was quite high. It's going to take a long time for it to get to that normal level. We also had a chance to talk about the future of remote work and how uh, many employees, the majority of employees say they enjoy remote work. They enjoy hybrid. They do not want to go back to this model of working uh, nine to five, Monday to Friday in an office, commuting, doing all that stuff that we did before the pandemic. But definitely this survey by Robert Half Canada shows that there is some benefit of meeting in person, that most of us do believe that meeting in person does still have value. And I believe that we will eventually get to a point where we probably are going to be in person most of the time, but remote work will not have that taboo anymore. It's not going to be considered code for I'm going to watch Netflix all day. It really is going to mean I'm just working from home because my kid has a recital at four o'clock and there's no way I'd make it home in time if I was to to drive into the city to to, to go to my job. And I'll just get off a little bit early and I'll be able to take take them to that recital or take them to that practice or whatever it is that you're doing. Or I've got a package arriving, I've got a sign for, so I got to be home today so I can be uh, available to that delivery person to to deliver that package to me, whatever it might be, just whatever you need to get your life going. Uh, Remote work is now considered a viable way to spend our day and uh, companies are definitely, they have had a shift in attitude when it comes to uh, what remote work is and how Uh, we are going to work going forward. Before I let you go, I wanted to share a a story that I read on Business Insider about a psychologist who earns seven figures a year. So she's got a nice big salary, but she really talks about how she built her wealth and how she doesn't like the word savings. Her name is Dr. Tracy Thomas, and she's been saving her income, part of her income for over three decades. And she has accumulated a lot of wealth. And she says, instead of calling it savings, call it wealth accumulation, building wealth, really putting that word wealth into it. So when we talk to younger people, especially, and ask them, okay, save into your retirement, your RRSP, save into your TFSA. That sounds like I'm asking them to take something away, that you're actually being deprived of something in your life, rather than why don't you build your wealthy retirement? Why don't you build your future wealth? Uh, in this account. That might be language that be that would be a little bit more inspiring for us rather than always hearing these words like budgeting, cutting back, being frugal, which is all the things we do when we do build wealth. Because if we focus on putting money into our investments, buying uh, and holding investments over the long term, that does build wealth. But we often use the word savings attached to it. So this psychologist is saying, let's change the way we talk about it. And that is going to encourage more people to save money or build wealth, I should say, for the future. And that is what the point of this 
whole program is for what it's worth is to really give people some tools so they can walk away and put into practice right away something that is going to build their financial wellness, build their wealth. I'm going to start using that more, build their wealth, uh, rather than asking people to constantly save money. I've always been um, critical of this latte factor that a lot of personal finance experts talk about. You know, cut out a latte and you're going to become a millionaire. Really what the message should be is if you can put $4 away and build your wealth over an X amount of time, if you invest that money, it will equal a million dollars. That's a better way of putting it rather than saying, don't buy that latte, but not giving them any other advice as to how they should be managing their money. I hope you enjoyed the program today. I know I really did uh, enjoy talking to Claire about inflation, talking to uh, Vula um, Vasilopoulos about remote work. I hope you join me next week. We'll be on at the same time. Thank you to Bilal Masri and James Petrovic for our technical producing. I'm Rubina Ahmad-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth.